The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from Matthew 16, the verses 21 to 26. Matthew 16, the verses 21 to 26. You'll be able to find that on page 1131 of your pew Bible. 1,131. His disciples have just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elder and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So far. In connection with this, we'll be reading from Lord's Day 49, continuing in our walk through the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Day 49, which you can find on page 562 of your book of praise. What is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will, and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, the passage that we read from today, Matthew 16, it would have come as a shock to the disciples. They've been enjoying life with their teacher, Jesus, their rabbi, traveling from place to place and learning from him. Peter himself has just proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, and Christ admitted that he was. So it seems that big things are ahead for them. But instead of celebrating the successes that they've had, and celebrating this revelation that he is the Christ, Jesus has been telling his disciples what's going to happen to him. That he's going to be opposed by the elders, the chief priests. That he's going to have to suffer and die. When Peter protests and says, never, Lord, Jesus rebukes him sharply. What happened? Where did that good feeling go? How did Peter so quickly go from being the rock on which Christ will build his church to being the person who is making a suggestion that Christ considered as being prompted by Satan? The reason for this sharp rebuke was that Peter had the things of man in mind. 
The disciple Peter was thinking of an earthly kingdom. When he heard that Jesus was the Messiah, he said, this is great. Now we can get started. He's admitted to it. We can start building. He was thinking of lifting up Christ, while Christ was concerned with submitting himself. He was thinking of bringing Christ to a position of exaltation, while Christ was going to submit to the wrath of God. Christ came down not to be served, but to serve and to give his life on, uh, give his life as a ransom for many. Peter was thinking of Christ being elevated, receiving glory and influence on this earth. And if Christ was elevated, well then, it wouldn't be such a bad thing for those who are closest to him, would it? They themselves might get power, authority, and be men of consequence in Israel, and perhaps even in the entire world. That would show the Pharisees and all those others who oppose Jesus, wouldn't it? Now, before you throw Peter under the bus, you need to realize that he wasn't alone with this mindset. It didn't come out of nowhere. Other disciples were thinking along the same lines as well. In fact, even after this episode, two chapters later in Matthew 18, you get them all discussing it with each other. And then coming to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This was a real question for them. They wanted to know who of all of them was going to be the best and the biggest. Who was going to benefit the most from Christ's rule. So you might be thinking, oh, let's throw them under the bus as well. But take a moment to stop there. What was the difficulty behind what Peter was saying? What was the problem with the attitude that they had? The disciples were willing to go along with Jesus Christ, with what Jesus Christ was saying. They were even willing to put up with discomfort and some opposition that came with him. Because they were at that point thinking of what would be best for them in the long run. They were willing to face hardship walking the dusty streets behind their rabbi, having the Pharisees occasionally challenge them, having to put up with the fright of someone wanting to kill Jesus, as long as it paid out for them in the end. But Jesus was calling them not to be served, but to serve. He was calling them to serve others, and he was calling them to submit themselves in service to God. What they didn't understand at this point yet was that man's whole purpose on earth was for one reason, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, not to glorify man. So when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, He was putting behind him this idea of self-elevation. He was putting behind him this temptation to seize the moment, to ride the wave, and to enjoy glory on this earth instead of submitting 
enduring suffering and pain for what was ahead. That was why to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus called his disciples to become little children, to humble themselves, even to deny themselves. And that's where it hits home for us, doesn't it? Because we're comfortable serving God. We're comfortable serving God if it doesn't shake up our world too much. Right now, it's even beneficial to be a Christian in our country. While other people might have a difficulty with us, we still meet here in Owen Sound Church. We have friends, business contacts, family. But would we be willing to continue here if God asked us to do hard things? If he called us to sacrifice? Our purpose is to live here for the glory of God and in doing so, carry out his will on earth. Now, you may not be thinking like the disciples of glory here on earth. But hearing them talk should give us pause. It should let us think, am I looking out for the kingdom of me? Or am I interested in the kingdom of God? Am I looking to God's will or my own? With that in mind, we'll look at our Petition for today, this petition of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. And we'll see this petition under four points. First, self-examination, then self-denial, spirit transformation, and finally, in service of heaven. When we look at this passage, or say this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, we don't always really think about what we're asking. What do you think about what you're saying when you say this phrase of the Lord's Prayer? Do you think about what you're asking? Often when we say this, we're looking elsewhere. We're looking to those around us. We might look to the United Church of Canada, for example, who just a while back, a good while back in Toronto, had a problem with an atheist pastor. Or the churches in Holland who, are, who we're thinking are wandering off theologically from where they ought to be. We look at events that are going on in the world. The most recent terror attack that took place this past week with a lone wolf terrorist taking yet another vehicle through another crowd. We think of the wars that are going on in the Middle East and we say, Lord, your will be done. Fix those people. Fix those places. Heaven is a good place. Make it like heaven down here. Bring peace. Make people more faithful. Draw wandering denominations to yourself. Your will be done. But is that really what we're supposed to be asking when we ask this petition? This is true in part, but it's not our starting point when we ask, Your will be done. Historically, the Presbyterian and Reformed churches have taken a different view from this. Our Heidelberg Catechism puts it pretty plainly. We read, grant that we and all men may deny our own will. It's a calling for us not to look out there, 
that it doesn't start out there with those people, but it starts with us, within us. With these words, I'm bearing my own soul before God. With these words, we're saying, God, I'm not able to do your will by myself. Work in me. Transform my will. It's not just looking to other people and other places, but it begins with looking within me. We recognize that all of our wills and the wills of all those around of us are broken and corrupt because of the fall into sin. We pray that God would grant both us and them the power to deny our wills and pursue His wills. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it much more bluntly than our Heidelberg. Question and answer 192 of the Catechism, the Larger Catechism says, By nature, we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against His word, to repine and murmur against His providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. Is that what we're really saying when we pray, your will be done? We understand that this is what our confessions, our catechism says, but is that what we're really saying? That not only are we corrupt, but we're prone to rebel against God? The Bible says, yes, we are. We read in Romans 3, verse 9 and following, both Jews and Greeks, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is not one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Our will by nature, Scripture says, is corrupt. Our will by nature needs to be transformed. Now at this point, You might be tempted to say, well, that may be true for others who aren't Christians, but that can't possibly be true for Christians, can it? Having become Christians, we do recognize that the fact still remains that under the law of God, we still fall short. We don't carry out God's will as purely as He requires. Even being daily shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit, we still need more. If it were just up to the measure of God's law alone, we would all be condemned. Romans 7, verse 18 and 19 highlights the reality in the life of the believer. There, the apostle writes, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Even transformed Christians daily struggle. Even transformed Christians continue to fall short. Even transformed Christians doing the best they could do, if left only under the law, would face indignation, wrath, tribulation and anguish that God pours out on the guilty. We too need daily reformation. That's why for us it's so important to find our identity in Christ. 
Because if we don't, we have the tendency to think that having become Christians, we're now doing better than those around us. Having become Christians, we're doing pretty good. But finding our identity in Christ, we're freed from our own desire to look at ourselves in a lofty way. We're free to examine ourselves. We're free to recognize that while, our, that while our wills too have been justified in Christ's death, they are still troubled by sin, even when we've been converted. We're free to acknowledge that we are of ourselves just as deserving of wrath as the next person, and our wills daily need personal reformation. Because in Christ we're shouting to the world, my will alone is not enough. My obedience is not enough. And yet I am in Christ. Because of that I recognize that my sin is there, that my sin is there, but it's paid for. We get the freedom to face our sins, to confront them, acknowledge them, and have our wills begin to be transformed into the image of Christ more and more each day. And that leads us into our second point. Examining ourselves, we're brought to the realization that we're not perfect. We're not doing just fine in and of ourselves. We may be washed clean of the guilt of our sin in the blood of Christ when we look to Him in faith. But that doesn't mean that in our day-to-day -day lives we suddenly stop sinning or have perfect faith. This is good news and it gives us hope. Because being purified by Christ, we know that we're also given strength to move ahead. That God does not ask what He will not supply. And that leads us to self-denial. Self-denial is the natural outcome of self-examination. In Christ, we're brought to recognize and acknowledge the problems in our lives. We're righteous in the sight of God through Christ. That is true. But we still have areas which we haven't surrendered to God perfectly in our lives. We still struggle with the daily reality of sin. That's the outcome of our self-examination. More and more of these areas are brought to light. And so, self-denial is what naturally follows from that. But what does that look like? What's our response to sin where we are right now, this minute, truly face to face with it, brothers and sisters? What ought it to be? Spurgeon writes, if you can sin and not weep over it, you are an heir of hell. If you can go into sin and afterwards feel satisfied to have done so, you're on the road to destruction. If there are no prickings of conscience, no inward torments, no bleeding of wounds, if you have no throbs and heavings of a bosom that cannot rest, and if your soul never feels filled with wormwood and gall when you know that you have done evil, you are no child of God. If you sin and embrace it, feeling satisfied with it. You are no child of God. But the person who does recognize their sin 
truly as sin. The person who grieves because they know their sin. Because they know that their sin grieves God. The person who recognizes that their solution for this can't be found within themselves, but can only be found in Christ. Such a person is a child of God. And such a person will respond and take steps to deal with this thing that they know so greatly grieves God. Our Lord Jesus Christ puts it in this way. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now some people have suggested that to take up your cross is only to shoulder the burdens in your life. You might have someone who struggles with alcohol dependency and hurt. Well, that's his cross to bear. Or someone who's struggling with regular bouts of cancer. Oh, that's her cross to bear. Maybe you've even said that about a cranky day with your kids. Well, kids are cranky. That's my cross to bear for today. But is it? Is that what it's referring to? Christ had just said to his disciples that he would be crucified. And he had confronted Peter for suggesting that he avoid doing this for his own gain. Now again, he says that his disciples aren't following him to wealth and glory. They were following him on the road to submission and servitude. They were following him on a road to complete self-denial, even to the point of death. And he's using the picture of a horrific instrument of death to make that point. It's like someone saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. When he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he's telling them to do something only convicted criminals do. When you take up your cross, you're headed to the site of your crucifixion. You're headed to the site of your death. But, you're not headed there alone. You're headed there in the wake of your Lord and Savior. In the wake of Jesus Christ. You might feel that you don't have the strength to deny yourself in this way. You might feel that you don't have the courage to move forward so radically. But you're following in the steps of your Savior. You're following in the steps of the one who for you has already lifted up his cross. Who is bearing it ahead of you. The one who has walked the walk on the road to, Gal- to Golgotha, on the road to Calvary. The one who has denied himself perfectly. You're walking in the steps of the one who sends out his spirit. Who will give his followers the strength and the courage to follow where he has trod. This is the very truth that he's teaching in the next words of our passage. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To what purpose do you lose your life? 
Christ himself led the way by enduring the cross and despising the shame in order that we ourselves could be joined to him. By dying to ourselves with him. By giving up these hang-ups, these excuses, these rejections. And our desires for some immediate desire instead of our desires for him. We are granted the joy of receiving our ultimate desire. Being with Christ forever in heaven. Now this isn't something that's easy. It's a cross after all. And dying to ourselves. Dying is never pleasant. Some sins have so deeply entrenched themselves in our lives that they can be twistedly precious to us. We want to hold on to those lusts as an outlet for our stress. We feel that desire for a destructive relationship to continue. We despise time that we hate to waste, yet love to waste for ourselves. But we recognize that, some desire, that such desires, while temporarily satisfying, will ultimately lead to our end if we pursue them. Though we gain the whole world through them, we'll lose our soul. And so we'll die to them. We will put them to death daily. We'll daily struggle against them. We'll daily fight against them. Recognizing that we're given the strength to do so. That we're given the direction to do so through our Lord and Savior. We're aiming towards something that's so much greater than what's on this earth. So we strive to put ourselves, deny ourselves, die to ourselves in order to gain a treasure that's beyond price. This leads us to our third point. In struggling to put these desires to death, however, we recognize that we can't do it ourselves. And that's the very reason we cry out to God, your will be done. We're praying, as the Catechism says, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. We know that we can't accomplish that ourselves. It's too much pain. We'll fight through some pain, but our sinful nature has a sense of self-preservation. It desires to have us, to overwhelm us. It doesn't want to be put to death. And so we need spiritual transformation. We look to God to carry us through that pain. And as we put ourselves and our desires to death, we cry out to God, your will be done, and embrace his will. Look to him for the strength to embrace his will, for it alone is good. The Westminster Larger Catechism describes it well in saying, we pray that God would, by his spirit, take away from ourselves and all others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart. But more than that, that he would, by his grace, make us able and willing to know, do, and submit to his will in all things. With the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy, as the angels do in heaven. God alone can make us willing. He alone can change us our service, from a drudgery to a delight. 
He alone can transform our hearts that we may love what he loves and hate what he hates. And so that's that final thing that we pray for when we pray, your will be done. We're praying, God, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Psalm 119, verse 18. And the marvelous thing is that through Jesus Christ, God does grant this prayer. Christ has gone back to heaven that the Holy Spirit might be sent to dwell in our hearts. When we pray, your will be done truly and sincerely, and when we're willing to submit to God in our lives instead of resisting his will, he will transform us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, he will change us from start to finish. He is the one who watches over us. The question is, do we look to him in these times? Do we pray, your will be done? When we do, in full sincerity, in fullness of heart, we can rest in the assurance that his will will be done. That he will transform us and bring us to him in eternity. Amen.